2: The Telegraph. Telegraph. Podcasts. Five. The NHS, we haven't had the funeral, but basically it is deceased. Four.
0: I do think some of our public sector unions, if you like, have become increasingly militant.
1: Three. Well, I think that there is a reasonable amount of... To use a technical phrase, ass covering, that happens in all government departments.
2: That'll be the main issue of the week, won't it? Sexist remarks made by
0: surgeons. It's like mowing the lawn when your house is burning down. <laughs> we have liftoff. Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. It's the cause of an estimated 350,000 cancelled appointments, including operations. So is this four-day junior doctor strike, which began on Tuesday and ends on Saturday morning, justified industrial action or an act of medical or even political sabotage? What does this strike say about our NHS? And can the BMA, the doctor's trade union demanding a 35% pay rise, now be characterised as militant? This doctor strike has really got on your goat, Alison, and you've written a howitzer of her column in Wednesday's Telegraph. The link of which can be found in the show notes. Of this episode. Aside from that, Labour's launched a series of attack ads against the Tories, which have offended the sensibilities of the party's left wing. And it's still 18 months before the general election, expected next autumn. The IMF is predicting again that the British economy is a basket case, but we've still avoided recession. Despite the predictions of gloomy economists everywhere. And meanwhile, Alison, pups in our closing in England and Wales at a rate of more than 50 a month is nothing sacred. And talking of beer co pilot, you're no longer a fan of Bud Light.
2: Before we get into my most annoying subject of the week, which is Bud Light paying. Dylan Mulvaney, a trans influencer, to make their brand more inclusive. Can I just mention, a bit of a shout-out, I was in a pub on Saturday night, unusual for me, very, very good Irish band called The
0: Hooligans. Have you heard them, Liam? I've never heard of them. They sound terrible. (laughs) It was fantastic. I saw you there, you were sitting there in the crowd getting eyed up by some of the locals. They call her Renny Zellviger, (laughs) no irony intended.
2: It's the Halligan Family Band, which was absolutely brilliant, featuring Liam's absolutely beautiful, highly talented daughter on violin and vocals, and the co-pilot was strumming away. Mystically. And I was being picked up by Irish men of a certain age who didn't have their own teeth, but you know...
0: (laughs) the best kind.
2: Still grateful for any attack. In fact, the one whose eye I caught was actually dancing with a pint of beer. I've never seen such a thing in my life. (laughs) A great night was had by all. But yeah, moving on, the latest update in our ongoing trans lunacy co-pilot was that a boycott has been sparked after Bud Light Beer Company paid this Dylan Mulvaney I'm sure planet normalists are far too sensible to spend any time on TikTok but Dylan Mulvaney a trans influencer has a huge following I'm told on TikTok now this follows Dylan Mulvaney being hired by Nike Two, if you please promote women's sports bras and leggings. Now, I'll tread carefully, Co-Pilot, but this is an individual who doesn't have breasts to put in a sports bra. There is a great deal of anger about this. And Sharon Davis, who has appeared on the podcast before, very, very angry about this invasion of women's spaces, the annexing of women's opportunity as well, Liam. Now, Sharon has called for a boycott of Nike clothing and talks about women being treated with real disdain. How long before Dylan, who, as far as we know, hasn't got a uterus and and won't be acquiring one, is promoting Tampax? I'm sure that'll be the next insult. And the other thing I want to put to you, co-pilot, is when when are any trans men going to be modelling Y-fronts with no male genitalia in them? I mean, you know, surely Calvin Klein needs Felicity, now Felix, advertising. It seems to be almost entirely Focused on appropriating women's space and opportunity. What say you?
0: It does seem a weird decision by a huge brand, Nike, and now Anheuser Busch InBev, the huge beer conglomerate that owns Bud hmm. Light. I don't, I don't begrudge Dylan Melvaney the gig. I don't begrudge the fact that she's had facial feminization surgery. People can live their lives however they want, as long as they don't harm others. As far as I'm concerned. But I do find myself agreeing with the likes of Sharon Davis, who, of course, appeared on Planet Normal back in early 2021, talking about concerns she had about trans competitors in female swimming, competitors who had been through male puberty, so then had you know skeletal, as she put it, advantages. And that issue really has hit the headlines since then. And why is it that big companies are doing things which will potentially offend lots of people. Well, the reality is, Alison, because lots of people would be offended if they didn't do it. That's just the way the world is. And it really is a generational thing, I think. And I won't understand it. And, you know, Lucy, the woman in my life, doesn't understand it. And you don't understand it. And the columnist Libby Perfs doesn't understand it. She's written a really powerful column in The Times, if I can refer to a rival newspaper and yet my kids do understand it and that's where we are there really is an intergenerational divide about this and what remains to be seen is that as the current young generation become older and become mums and dads and live their lives and become a lot more experienced will they change their mind about these things i don't know if they will I think this is a rupture that's going to last a long time. And as baffling as you and I find it, it's common sense to a lot of people who are aged 15 to 25.
2: But why are these big companies pandering to it, Liam? Stealing opportunity from women? I don't think it's just a question of what's going on in female sport, although that probably is the most blatant unfairness. And, and we should mention that we've also seen this week the American swimmer Riley Gaines, a top college athlete. I highly recommend to Planet Normal listeners. It's an absolutely
0: incredible, terrific
2: speech. speech at San Francisco State University, saying that men simply should not compete in women's sport. And Riley was ambushed and attacked by trans activists after that speech in a very, very ugly scenes. We should remind ourselves, Liam, that Riley Gaines was a swimmer on the University of Kentucky's women's swimming team. And she raced against the University of Pennsylvania swimmer, Leah Thomas,
0: male born,
2: who identifies as female, and Gaines and Leah Thomas tied in that race. But when it came for time for photographs on the podium, the National Collegiate Athletic Association, that's the NCAA, informed Riley Gaines that only Thomas would hold the trophy. I mean, these are absolutely staggering discriminatory events and the women who were competing with leah thomas leah thomas was in their female changing room wandering around genitals intact and i think we we, we're asking now liam how much more of this kind of behavior are we going to tolerate from trans rights activists because i do see your point that our kids are more open to this and think it's kind and inclusive and so on, but it seems to me increasingly that it's extremely misogynistic and aggressive. I'm sure we're going to be arguing
0: about this for a long time to come, aren't we, Copilot? I think we're pretty close on this. Uh, I don't mind referring to somebody with the pronoun that they they want to use. I won't be hectored by them or told that I'm being rude and insensitive if I make an innocent mistake. That really gets on my goat. I profoundly agree with Sharon Davis, and I think she's done a fantastic job to highlight these issues in elite sport. And I think swimming and athletics have done the right thing. The sport that I know most about rowing hasn't done the right thing, in my view. I completely agree with you. Riley Gaines's speech is absolutely phenomenal. And the fact that she wasn't allowed to take the platform alongside... Leah Thomas, was disgraceful virtue signaling by the organizers of that event. Because if she, as a female-born swimmer, drew with a male-born swimmer, that is an incredible achievement. And some of these people who are competing in women's sport, having been male-born, you know, they might be sort of 800th in the world when it comes to male, i.e., you know, good, but nothing to write home about. And then suddenly, when they compete in female categories, they're vying for the top medals, denying the women who have worked all their lives, particularly in sports like swimming, where it's massive, massive dedication from literally from your earliest childhood. You are in the pool every day. Huge sacrifice, commitment, resilience by you, your friends, your family. And to have that taken away from you is completely outrageous. And I do think people in the younger generation who's, instant response whose instinctive responses to quotes be kind are now starting to think these things through a little bit more and I tell you what I feel most sorry for in all of this somebody who's I told you once I once worked in a transvestite bar yes when I was 18 and 19 years and years ago in the late 80s in Australia it wasn't a very friendly environment for gay people and certainly not for trans people in Australia in those days and the people who I really feel sorry for in all of this are trans people who just want to live their lives Mm. they don't want to be part of an absolutely huge ongoing culture war they don't want people like me and you discussing this issue at the top of an extremely popular podcast Mm. that's on a platform of a national newspaper they just want to get on with their lives and live in the way that they want to live and i think the very aggressive part of the trans lobby and it is extremely aggressive and intolerant and disingenuous often in my view and they can try and cancel me if they want but I think they should be thinking more about how the vast majority of trans people who of course a tiny but completely legitimate part of the population Mm. just want to live their lives and not become part of a political turf war.
2: Now moving on to the dominant story of the week which you mentioned at the top the junior doctor's are on strike, extraordinary period of action, for whole days this week. As you said, Liam, estimated that 350,000 operations and appointments would be cancelled because of this, and that's on top of the already existing 7 million long hospital waiting list, causing absolute sort of chaos. I don't know what you think about it, Liam. I, I have some sympathy that their pay award – last year was absolutely derisory Steve Barclay the health secretary ignored the recommendations of his own independent Pay review body and gave the junior doctors 2%. We've seen a lot of reduction in numbers of doctors. People are leaving because the conditions are so bad. The strain on the system, the system that you know, I think the NHS has effectively ceased to be. That parrot is deceased, co pilot. The NHS is no <laughs> wouldn't more. It would
0: go boom if you put 20,000 volts through it. We haven't
2: had the funeral, but basically it is deceased. So there are these doctors who are working in a system without sufficient colleagues. One of my particular sources of absolute fury, really, with the government, not just with the government, with the NHS managers. Nowhere to be seen, Liam, this week. Where are they? The people paid six-figure salaries for running the institution, which is currently On its knees. And, you know, you had to laugh to see Amanda Pritchard, the CEO, chief executive of NHS England, popping up with a story about sexist remarks made by surgeons. That'll be the main issue of the week, won't it? Sexist remarks made by surgeons. i have
0: described that to you as like, it's like mowing the lawn when your house is burning down. (laughs) Or maybe maybe a bit of light weeding.
2: Absolutely. So I do think it was a dreadful mistake by Steve Barclay to bung the doctors a really paltry and insulting 2% last year. And I'm sure Part of their anger now is if you give highly skilled professional people who are working under huge pressure and insulting pay rise, you know, don't be surprised if they're very angry. But now they've come up with this absolutely crazy 35% demand fueled, I think, Liam, by the British Medical Association. The BMA always sounds like a sort of really reasonable, nice bunch of wise doctors, doesn't it? But not a bit of it. I think it's talking to senior doctors, they're saying to me, they don't want anything to do with the BMA, which is now a sort of radical Marxist organisation. With the of bringing down a Conservative government?
0: I do think some of our public sector unions, if you like, have become increasingly militant, as you and I predicted would happen when we first started talking about a winter of discontent a couple of years ago now. I think the same things happened at some of the teaching unions Mm. where the leadership is increasingly distanced from the rank and file, you know, regular staff room teachers regular doctors and yet there's a culture where it's very very difficult to push back and I also think the BMA is being a bit disingenuous in places I completely agree with you Steve Barclay's two percent pay rise was incendiary and I agree with you that we do have to try and retain more junior doctors but we also need to train a lot more junior doctors and the BMA in the past by the way has voted against the expansion of doctor training it's voted against the opening of new medical schools. It seems to have far too much say, if you ask me, in terms of how the state trains doctors and when and where it can. And the Nuffield Trust, which is an extremely respected health think tank, says that a pay rise of between eight and ten percent would be restorative, making up for previous falls when different assumptions are used, rather than the thirty five percent, which is just a mad, mad figure. I mean, it's almost designed to provoke the idea that anyone can get a 35% pay rise in the normal uh, run of things. And also, like you, a lot of my closest friends from university are medics, and I'm proud of them and I'm proud of what they do, and I'm grateful to them for what they do. But even they have disclosed some concerns to me about some of the claims that the BMA is making. A lot of doctors in their early 30s can earn six-figure sums because they can take time off and then they've got huge opportunities to pick up additional shifts at much higher locum rates, almost I wouldn't say exploiting, but living with the inefficiency, the massive inefficiencies of the NHS allow doctors to make a huge amount of money. And also, if doctors are so badly paid, why do so many retire early? And how do they all have so much time, if they're so overworked, to do so much work in the private sector as well, while being obviously educated at huge expense to the state, as well as, of course, a huge effort on their own part to undergo that extremely rigorous and lengthy training, having got into medical school in the first place. I think it's a lot more complicated than, you know, we're doctors, we save lives, so we want a 35% pay rise. I think this really goes to the heart of the massive inefficiency of the NHS and the fact that the NHS, with the best will in the world, If you look at oncology outcomes, if you look at outcomes for strokes and heart disease and so on, we are nowhere near the best in the world. We are very near the bottom of the OECD table. We are being outclassed. Obviously, we have absolutely superb, world-leading aspects of our healthcare system. The UK is still capable of doing things health-wise that no one else in the world can do, of course. And at its best, the NHS really is astonishingly good. But in terms of average outcomes across average humdrum, sadly, commonplace conditions like strokes, like oncology, like heart disease, we are being beaten by countries that until quite recently were part of the Eastern Bloc. I probably
2: said this before, Liam. I don't think we have a first world health system anymore. I don't think the public has caught up with it yet. I think the ghost of the reverence for the NHS. It's taking a long time to disappear, but I think that the facts now are unarguable. The situation with the inability to recruit or to retain staff, I think, is past a national emergency now. When I see those doctors on the picket line, I feel a bit sick, really. They're smiling, they're waving their banners. Some
0: of them are even on holiday. Yes,
2: yeah. the co-chair of the BMA has decided to use the occasion of the extremely serious national strike to bugger off to a wedding. You can't make these people up, can you? But look, Liam, the NHS, it looks like it's going to have to die and to be destroyed before something can come from the ashes. And we've often talked about the lack of political courage in facing up to this. The Tories know. Professor Pat Price told us it's its on the too difficult pile They're totally in denial. Something that jumped out at me this week is a lot of junior doctors are saying, many of our friends and colleagues, they're off to Australia where they can be paid 200 grand a year. The conditions are so marvellous. Yeah, the same doctors who bitterly oppose reform to our sainted NHS eagerly take positions in Australia and then boast about the high pay and marvellous working conditions there. Australia doesn't have a clapped out socialist health service, which British people, the majority of British people are condemned to have this utterly dreadful. I mean, it is so dreadful. We are paying a huge amount of national insurance for a system where you cannot see a doctor and you have to join a waiting list to go on a waiting list for an operation. Now, Australia has a mixed provision, part state, part private insurance scheme, which is exactly what we should have here in the UK. It's what most sane countries have. Israel, the Netherlands, Germany, France, Switzerland, nobody has a national health service like ours because they're not that stupid. And I suppose that the reason I did write a very angry and upset column this week, we should be angry, Liam. Thousands and thousands of people are dying avoidable deaths because our country is chained to a dying animal, which is its health service. It is an albatross around our neck. It's having a huge impact on the economy. Tens of thousands of people can't work because they cannot get the basic hospital treatment they need, cataracts, knee operations. I feel so deeply about this and I'm not seeing anyone who has the Margaret Thatcher-type stature and courage to confront the British people and say, we cannot, we cannot go on like
0: this. I think you're right to be angry, Alison, and this is a big failure of our politics and indeed of our media class. Very few journalists are prepared to call this out, as we have been doing on Planet Normal. You're right, of course, many, many other advanced countries have... A mixed economy health service where it is free at the point of use, <laughs> absolutely free at the point of use, but it's an insurance based system where there's a split between the purchaser and the provider, so the state gives you the means and your insurance gives you the means to go shop around, empowering the patient to get health care that they're entitled to from a range of different providers, and that of course generates efficiencies and better. Outcomes and the thing I wanted to pick up in your column, which I do think is really really important because it comes from such an impeccable source, is this you and I have been talking to medics here on Planet Normal. We've been discussing this concept of the waiting list to be on the waiting list to be on the waiting list. You've now talked to George about that, and George, of course, is the Planet Normal senior source within NHS England with full access to the internal data. We don't disclose his or her identity. We're very confident of the authenticity of George's statistics and insights, and that's why we report them. But we can't independently verify them because we get them before they're published, if indeed they're published at all. So tell us, Alison, explain to us what George has explained to you about that six to seven million strong waiting list number, which itself, of course, is easily the worst position we've ever been in.
2: Absolutely. Well, as George said, because that backlog has come from lockdown when vast waves of the NHS shut down, which didn't happen in medical systems in other countries. And George says the strike is going to cause so much damage to an NHS already hugely damaged by COVID and lockdown and George is saying, where is the NHS management in all this? They seem to have had another responsibility bypass despite holding the can on staffing levels for 10 years and that's never covered, is it, Liam, by the media. They're never dragging these people out of their posh offices to talk about where are the staff, why haven't you managed this, you know, scores of them. But on the waiting list, I said to George, Could 13% of the population in England be on a hospital waiting list very easily? It's probably more than that. And George says the population of England is around 56 million. There are just over 7 million on a hospital waiting list currently. There are a further 4 million not on a waiting list but will need some form of consultation in the near future. These are all people with long-term conditions who will need specialist follow-up care that can't be provided by GP alone. So we've got 7 million on the waiting list. We heard this week that there are further 2 million who are having to have at least four GP appointments before they can get a hospital referral. So that's got us to 9 million. And now George is saying basically the 2 million is actually 4 million in practice. So we are talking about 11 million people in England, Liam who are either on a waiting list or are getting on a waiting list to get onto the waiting list. These are truly staggering numbers.
0: That's a third of the workforce. Of course, some of those will be pensioners. In fact, they'll be disproportionately pensioners. You can't truly say it's a third of the workforce. But I think your insight – God, I never thought I'd say this sentence, Alison Pearson. (laughs) I think your insight on the economy was particularly
2: well-made
0: (laughs) –
2: Well, not just that, but the fact that you're going
0: to make that your ringtone now, aren't you?
2: (laughs) Hang on, co-pilot said she's had some insight (laughs) on the economy. (laughs) We know from Dr. Clare, don't we? Our GP in London, Planet Normal GP, Dr. Clare's been saying that she cannot now refer patients with any ease to consultants in hospitals at all. So, my guess is the NHS management plan is to obstruct as many patients from getting onto the waiting list as possible while trying to clear the backlog. But that's clearly not going to happen if this week alone we have subtracted another 350,000 operations and procedures. And I, in any other circumstances of national emergency, they'd be calling a COBRA meeting, wouldn't they, Liam? They'd be saying this huge percentage of the population cannot get medical treatment. Are we going to start booking them appointments in France and in Belgium? Which was what happened, if you remember, under New Labour. Do you remember that they started giving people vouchers to travel abroad? And I'm just wondering out loud now, at what point... Is someone going to say we're going to have to send people abroad because we sure as hell can't give them treatment in any timely fashion here?
0: War in Ukraine
2: is reshaping our world. For the past 12 months, The Telegraph's team of experts in London and correspondents on the ground have been analysing Putin's invasion of Ukraine every weekday on the Ukraine The Latest podcast. With over 24 million listens, Ukraine The Latest is the go-to source for up-to-date analysis on the war from every angle. Military, humanitarian, political, economic, historical, just to name a few. Each episode we unpack the past 24 hours of the conflict, as well as regularly being joined by our own on-the-ground correspondents and guests who take us into their own experience of the war. Search for Ukraine The Latest in the same place you're listening to this podcast and follow the podcast so you don't miss an episode. Thank you for listening.
0: And now on to our latest Planet Normal guest. Catherine McBride is an economist who specializes in trade and agriculture. She's a member of the Trade and Agriculture Commission, part of the Department of International Trade. A native Australian, Catherine Borton, sold derivatives in the city of London for twenty years, and she's since become a highly sought-after policy expert, working for the likes of the Institute of Economic Affairs, the Legatum Institute, and other think tanks. I started by asking Catherine to outline, wait for it, the CPTPP. That's the shiny new trade deal that the UK has just inked with eleven Pacific Rim countries, including Japan, Canada. And Australia.
1: Well, it is the Comprehensive and Progressive Trans-Pacific Partnership. It's a very good trade agreement, and it is just a trade agreement with some of the world's fast-growing markets, generally around the Pacific. It's Canada, Mexico, Chile, Peru, New Zealand, Australia, Brunei, Vietnam, and Singapore, and Malaysia. And uh, there is a accumulation effect. We have trade deals with nine of the 11 countries. But right now, if we are buying their goods individually, they don't work when we're selling products that are made with those goods into other countries in the CPTPP. So the accumulation effect is enormous in this area, but a lot of people don't understand that.
0: What you're saying, Catherine, is that there's a kind of cumulative effect here. When you're trading with these countries and particularly trading services, of course, the UK can make a lot of money. But also when you're trading products, the rules of origin rules don't apply within the trading block or apply differently. So it gives our exporters more scope to trade with this fast growing part of the world.
1: Yeah, a lot of people don't understand that manufactured goods these days are made up of parts and semi-finished goods and materials that are imported from other countries And when you export a good, the people look at how much of the exported good is value added in the UK. So within the CPTPP, for instance, there's some very good diagrams about this on the Australian website. Hopefully the UK will do similar, where a New Zealand ice cream manufacturer, for instance, who's using New Zealand milk, can use imported cocoa beans from Malaysia, sugar from Australia... And all of that is still counted as being able to sell that ice cream to, say, Japan or Mexico as getting the preferential treatment for the tariffs that it might not get if New Zealand was just adding the milk. When they add all that up, they can say, oh, that's not enough New Zealand content to be sold tariff-free to Mexico. But because the CPT treats all CPTPP, ingredients, if you like, equally, then it does count to be sold to Mexico or Canada or Japan at the preferential tariff rate, which is generally zero. Not always, not all goods will be completely tariff-free, but uh, according to the government, they have lowered tariffs on about 99% of goods.
0: It is quite complicated, but I think as well as the rules of origin, which you've explained, I think another interesting concept that a lot of people knocking this news about us joining this trade agreement don't understand. These countries are really far away. But the UK, of course, is the world's second biggest exporter of services and services are often delivered via email or on a conference call or, or remotely how good is this for the UK economy, given that we are an export superpower when it comes to services, and given, Catherine, that the EU single market never really solved the problem of services, never really applied to services, did it? And that's one reason that it wasn't so good for the UK as it could have been. I've
1: actually done an in-depth analysis of UK service trade as well as UK goods trade, And the service trade is interesting because our biggest service export by far is what we call other business services. That's accounting, legal, consultancy services. That has been growing massively since the turn of the century. And our exports outside the EU have grown much more than our exports to EU countries. And a lot of that is to do with language and accounting standards and common law. And so we trade a lot of our business services to countries that have similar business practices or the same language as we do. So that that is America, but also all the former colonies, which includes Australia, New Zealand, Canada, Singapore, Malaysia. Obviously, we do a lot of financial services in the same countries and telecommunication services have been huge all over the world as well insurance and pensions, intellectual property, transport, travel. We import a lot of goods from that part of the world. The idea that you only trade with countries that are close to you is completely false. And you can look up the trade statistics, which are available quite granularly by country, and see how much trade we are doing with the rest of the world. And from often from very far away places. And one of the reasons our trade dropped to the EU after we left was that the EU's rules of origin on clothing and footwear excluded semi-finished or completely manufactured goods that we were getting made for British companies, but they were being made in Vietnam or made in Bangladesh or even made in Malaysia. So we're already importing
0: a lot of goods from these countries. It's not as if they're so far away we can't import things from them. And what do you make, Catherine, when the news broke that we would joined the CPTPP, Kemi Badnock had done the deal, the BBC led on a rather obscure estimate that had been produced by Whitehall quite some time ago that membership would mean a 0.08% addition to the UK's GDP. The Secretary of State herself, Kemi Badnock, told me that that was a ridiculous assessment, even though it had been produced by her own department prior to when she was Secretary of State. What did you make of that estimate?
1: Well, I think that there is a reasonable amount of, to use a technical phrase, arse-covering that happens in all government departments because it's commonly assumed that it's been predicted by the OBR that the Brexit will cause in the future sometime, the UK economy to be 4% lower than it would have been. And by making that sort of prediction, if it's anything less than that, that's good. But you sort of hedge yourself, if you like. And I think the same people who predicted the returns from this trade deal were doing the same thing. I mean, if they lower your expectations then anything better will be good. So they just don't want to be wrong on the wrong side of it, if you like, which we also saw with COVID, where they went massively over the top with their death predictions.
0: This seems to be endemic though, Catherine. The OBR is consistently too pessimistic. The Bank of England said we'd have a recession lasting five quarters over a year, and yet we've avoided recession altogether.
1: And I think that they just figure that you're better off to say there'll be a recession and they're not being, so people will be happy, where if you say everything will be fine and there is some kind of downturn, then you look silly. It's the Michael Fish avoidance.
0: <laughs> Don't worry, there'll be no hurricane at all, he said in 1987, as trees were being uprooted.
1: <laughs> the young ones won't understand who that is. But anyhow, but I have talked to Graham Goodchen, a very distinguished who was, who Cambridge economist, the of course, Committee looking at these sort of estimates and basically says that they use an American's model, which uh, is called GTAP, G-T-A-P. And he found it very difficult, even though he was on the committee, to actually find out what the underlying elasticities they were using. Because obviously the elasticity is is how much the volume of trade would increase if the prices dropped by the amount of the tariff. That's really important to, any
0: estimation and this is what econometricians people who use mathematical techniques to model the, the economy the elasticities are absolutely central they are the kind of software in the hardware of the model if the elasticities are implausible then the outcomes will be implausible as we say in the world of econometrics garbage in garbage out
1: yes exactly he believes that they are based on american data So they don't even reflect UK tastes or UK's attitude towards what they will spend money on and what they won't. I think uh, we are quite a different spending attitudes, if you like, than a lot of the American populations that I've lived with at any rate.
0: And services are a bigger share of our trade than they are of America's trade.
1: Well, definitely. And right now, America's biggest trading section is oil and gas, and we've sort of not completely dropped out of that market, but we are easing ourselves out of
0: that market. I do want to ask you a bit more about Brexit, Catherine, which you supported, but Planet Normal listeners, if they've not seen you on television, they'll hear that you are from down under. Tell us about your relationship with the UK, because of all the non Native British people I know. I have to say, and you've just demonstrated it with Michael Fish in my conversations with you, your knowledge of British popular culture is incredible.
1: (laughs) Well, I have been here for a long time and I've actually lived in London for longer than I ever lived in Australia. I moved here in the 80s to work for an Australian broking firm selling derivatives on Australian stocks to investors because back in the 80s, there were not a lot of countries that the British fund managers would invest in outside of, you know, the G7, if you like, because believe it or not, in those days the rest of the world was considered sort of the wild west. And then I I transferred into selling derivatives, or I was headhunted to an English firm to trade derivatives on the European markets in the early 90s, because they were just opening up derivatives. It seems a bit crazy. A lot of people in England believe. Europe is the most sophisticated place on earth. I mean, even England was slow to the party, which is why so many Australians came to London to trade on
0: the life exchanges. So you are a really technical person in my experience, and yet you're also good at explaining things. So let me ask you about Brexit, Catherine. Why are there all these queues at Dover? Is it because of Brexit?
1: It's interesting. A man on uh, Twitter, whose name's just gone out of my head, did put together the most fantastic thread the other day, pulling up photographs of front pages of newspapers going back to 2012 about queues going to France. I can remember sitting on queues going to France and my mother-in-law used to live towards Dover and we used to drive down and see her before Brexit, you know, when this operation stack was happening, there were trucks parked all the way along the motorway. So to try and pretend that this is a brand new phenomenon that's never happened before is a little bit tricky because anyone who's older than about 10 has probably heard this before. Whether the French are being worse now than they were before is hard to know. The big loser, of course, would be France tourism if people start going somewhere else. And that's one of the reasons why, weirdly, since Brexit, the British weren't so hasty in putting up border controls for a lot of imports, which they've now announced they're going to do, because they know that the real beneficiary of trade, and this is also trade in terms of travel, which is a big part of many European countries' economies, you know, you don't want to slow it coming into your country because <laughs> you benefit. And it's kind of crazy that they are doing this because, yes, they are hurting British people who are sitting in queues, but in the long run it will be their hotels and their restaurants and their petrol stations and highway cafes or who may be catering to tourists as they drive through to Switzerland or wherever they're going. They're the people that lose in the long run. It does seem a bit crazy to me and it doesn't make me go, gee, wish, I wish we'd stayed in Europe. That looks like a fun place. I mean, it it just looks hideous. But we could talk rather than the checks on tourists about the announcement about Brexit border checks, which as i just said, have not been implemented yet.
0: This is on goods coming from the continent into the UK.
1: Yeah, yeah, they're gonna start doing that, though they're really, again, not rushing into it. The date I believe is October 2024. So when I first saw that, I thought they meant the 24th of October, but actually no, they mean October next year. But they will start implementing some parts of it apparently in January. Some people think it's great. Some people are a bit worried about it. The National Farmers Union feels it's important because they feel that they have been discriminated against by Europeans when they try and export goods to Europe. There's been no problem with Europeans continuing to export food to the UK. Now, obviously, that was a sensible thing for the government to do because we really rely on EU food at the moment and we haven't really got alternatives in place yet. We will have soon, the trade deals have been signed with Australia and New Zealand who are both big food exporters and obviously they're they're redoing other trade deals with other countries and hopefully that will also bring other alternative places to get food from.
0: Let me ask you one final question, Catherine. You deal in complex economic issues and you do your very best to explain them to a broad audience. How well does the British media explain these complex ideas about economics to a broad audience? Be honest.
1: Well, they don't explain them at all. Often they either don't understand them or I believe that they have been fed a line by either a PR company, if it's a a corporate line, or if it's the government has a huge number of people working in Westminster, as you probably know, who are effectively doing media work, as in they are the PR people for the government. I used to joke about people studying media studies, but I now realise that the world is being run by people who studied media studies at university. You know, they're they're not listening, they're turning things into a soundbite and pushing it out there, and the public lap it up without ever questioning, are you sure about that? You know, There aren't enough people who've got experience of the world to say that isn't right. I've seen when the Australian trade deal was going through, because I'm, I'm on the Trade and Agriculture Commission, we were getting sent the most extraordinarily stupid letters from various campaign groups complaining about mythical things that are meant to happen in Australia. And it was quite extraordinary how much people lapped that up, even other people on the commission who should have seen through that and gone, hang on a minute, (laughs) that's not right. It was kind of incredible how it's easy for activists and lobby groups to stir up the population and far too many journalists these days They either don't have the budget, so they can't do investigative work as they used to do when I was a kid, or they assume that people are looking things up on the internet, so therefore they have to just be an opinion person. They don't need to actually explain stuff. Or maybe they have editors who only want them to put out a clickbait story that will sell. You know, how often have you seen a headline that doesn't even vaguely relate to the story? You clicked onto it because of the headline. And when you read down it, you think this has nothing to do with that headline. And that's happening more and more.
0: Catherine McBride, a great summary there of the issues affecting the media here in the UK and elsewhere. Great to have you join us here on Planet Normal.
2: How refreshing to hear that co-pilot. I was plucking up courage to ask you what the CPTPP was, but I was worried I'd get the wrong number of p's and in the wrong place. But it's really good to have such an expert talk to us about that trade deal, and I think also to counter the relentless negativity which we're exposed to about British economic prospects, with the notable exception of the leading economist co-pilot Halligan. I mean, she was saying some very encouraging things, wasn't she?
0: She was, and. I must say, I do think The Telegraph's business and economic staff have done a pretty good job of explaining this. But I think once you get outside the business sections of the leading newspapers, such as they are, what's said is just such rubbish about these kind of things. And even some business journalists approach these issues with an extremely jaundiced view. The idea that distance really matters in trade, it doesn't anymore. Not when you're the second biggest service exporter in the world Mm. you know if distance matters we wouldn't do multiple times more trade with uae than we do with sweden for instance you know not because sweden isn't an advanced economy it is it's just that our trading pattern fits more with what uae needs and this is a really big achievement the signing of this trade deal. Work started in earnest under Liz Truss. Remember her? Mm. When she was business secretary. I remember talking to her about it and she was absolutely obsessed with the CPTPP, making sure that Britain was part of it. And Kemi Badenok has very much taken up that mantle and got the deal over the line. It's much better to be in this trading block than to have the individual trading deals with the individual countries, as Catherine tried to explain through the rules of origin Mm. regulations, which mean that within the block, you can get cumulatively low tariffs as manufactured goods become more complex. And that's very, very important for a lot of our component suppliers and so on. And I should also say that in so many trade deals, it's the farming lobby that gets really narked about them. But the NFU itself has been... Not absolutely gushing, but pretty supportive of this trade deal because some of the terms and conditions in it, as far as we know, are better than the individual deals we've signed with the likes of Australia and Japan. So it's not as if the farming lobby has been sold out. The whole shape of the global economy is shifting towards the east. By 2050, the EU will account for 10% of the global economy, whereas The 11 countries in the CPTPP, even before the deal takes in more countries, which it possibly will, those 11 countries will account for 25% of the global economy. So this is where the growth is heading. There's a famous statement by Wayne Gretzky, who's a Canadian ice hockey legend, and he said, I skate not to where the puck is, I skate to where the puck is going to be. Mm. trying to capture the importance of anticipation and spatial awareness in that fast-moving game in which he excelled and it's the same in business and the same in trade you've got to go where the growth is going to be and demographically the growth is going to be in the east and Britain needs to tap into that and This overarching trade deal is really good for services. We could export hardly any of our services to the EU because the single market prevented it happening. It was meant to be a single market for goods and services, but the services side of it was always blocked by domestic courts. And even David Cameron would admit to that because he spent a lot of work trying to correct that when he was in Downing Street. So it does strike me this is a good idea. The U.S. could even join the CPTPP. That is not out of the question at all, not under Biden, but under future mm. administrations. And then we wouldn't need to do a trade deal with the U.S. Mm. And if the CPTPP took in the U.S., we'd get much better terms because we could negotiate with the U.S. as part of a bloc. So a lot of what's written about this stuff is complete nonsense. And I was glad that the Trade Secretary, Kami Badenoch, had the gumption to call out the 0.08% addition to GDP estimate of her own department. An estimate, even Graham Gudgeon, who's a very distinguished trade economist, he wasn't able to get his hands on the underlying assumptions which drove that estimate. He tried very hard to do so. And that estimate assumes that no other countries will join the CPTPP when obviously they will because the trading regimes that are being promoted by the EU and indeed by the World Trade Organization are being superseded by this group of countries who are trying to genuinely reverse the growing protectionism we've had in recent years. They are genuinely trying to remake the global trading framework. This stuff sounds airy-fairy and arcane, but this is the kind of stuff that really matters. These are the kind of circuit boards of the global economy that make commerce work. And I think it's fantastic news that Britain's joined this trade deal.
2: Isn't it all part, though, of the anything after Brexit must be terrible? I mean, that's been decreed that everything after Brexit must be a failure. I was thinking of you this week, seeing the latest glum prognostications from our old friends at the IMF, despite the fact that forecast was showing Britain enjoying the biggest growth upgrade of any G7 nation, yet the IMF forecast still somehow managed to put the UK in the doghouse, saying its economy will suffer the biggest hit among peer countries in 2023 and shrink by 0.3%. And with my Velma hat on, I haven't been putting Velma's hat on for a while, have I? <laughs> <laughs> I had that for a while. I did like the fact that the IMF has made 28 predictions about the British economy between 2016 and 2022. Of those, 25 forecasts were overly pessimistic with just three predictions <laughs> being too optimistic. Who would have guessed that these global bodies would want to give us a kicking? What's going on, Halligan? What's going on?
0: Alison, what can I say? They're all economists. <laughs> it's more scientists.
2: <laughs> now onto our listener emails, the marvellous messages you send to us at Planet Normal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We absolutely love reading them and are so inspired by the things that you tell us. Obviously, a, a huge amount of response this week to the junior doctor's strike. This is from Leslie. My late husband was a GP. He took Sunday nights off that was it. On call the rest of the time, did all his own home visits, no appointments in his surgery, just turn up and wait your turn. Knew all his patients. He'll be turning in his grave at the state of them all now. My husband's father and brother were also GPs, both with the same commitment to their patients. This rich, quote unquote, country is so much poorer now that people with their dedication are disappearing. And Dr. Anger says, the only thing that can save the NHS is improving staff retention, which is never acknowledged by politicians. The whole management structure has to go before this will ever happen. Doctors waste far too much time just ticking boxes. Also, why should a junior doctor put up with Steve Barclay's demands when they all see diversity manager posts advertised a salary two to three times their own? One NHS manager I know has confided she has next to nothing to do while junior doctors are rushed off their feet. Last month, more doctors with degrees from outside the UK were working for the NHS than those who qualified here. One of my surgical colleagues says that they rarely reach 66% of the workload at present than they did pre-pandemic due to excessive management restrictions. Bring back matron, state-enrolled nurses, and give the control back to clinicians and clinical firms that worked so well when I was training.
0: This is from Vince. I've shortened it slightly. Dear co-pilots, driven to distraction by the broadcast media's soft coverage of the BMA junior doctor strike, I was compelled to write to the Voices of Sanity. Why do the NHS management and unions get such an easy ride from broadcasters? Much of the reporting is innumerate, poorly researched, naively accepting of the BMA's claims. The question and points one would really love to hear put to the BMA include, you complain about a lack of resources, yet government debt's huge and taxes are already at their highest in over 70 years, while public services remain generally awful. Aren't you really asking for an increase in everyone else's taxes, to give you a pay rise. You claim many doctors are leaving the NHS to work overseas for better pay. But many go and work in countries like Australia and Canada, which don't have socialist NHS systems, but instead sensible and comprehensive insurance schemes where medicine is independent, patients have choice and are treated promptly and with respect. Many of the same doctors leave the NHS to escape its ghastly bureaucracy, its culture of political correctness and acceptance of slowness and low standards. And many admit Privately to going abroad to escape the UK's high taxes and conveniently avoid their student loan repayments. For each BMA member now on strike, says Vince, there were three or four equally academically well qualified A level students who didn't get the place at medical school that they took. The public and patients may be entitled to ask if there's something missing in medical admissions and training, a failure to recruit based on factors like moral fibre, self discipline, and a commitment to patients. Many of those candidates who didn't get those rare medical school places might have been the doctors who wouldn't be on strike now. The BMA says train more doctors, but in 2008, delegates at the annual BMA conference voted to restrict the number of places at medical schools. They also agreed on a complete ban on opening new medical schools. Fifteen years on, we have a shortage of doctors who would now be in their early 30s. Isn't the public today entitled to regard the BMA with scepticism? You claim your members are underpaid, but if NHS pays so bad, how come over half of GPs afford to work part-time and retire early? That's simply not an option for most people. And speaking of retirement, doctors guarantee pensions, which facilitate early retirement, have uncapped inflation increases unavailable to almost anyone outside the public sector. For your information, BMA members, your pensions are probably worth over 50 to 60% of your salary on top. Apologies for the length of this email, but keep up the great work. Alison and Liam, from Vince.
2: That's such a fantastic email. If Vince was in charge, we wouldn't be in the mess we're in today. I also wrote this week, co-pilot, about not being able to muster a huge amount of enthusiasm for the forthcoming coronation. Although, of course, I'm going to have to write tens of thousands of words about it. Ruth says... I strongly agree with you about the coronation. I, too, am finding it hard to whip up any enthusiasm, partly because I do miss our late queen. I was born the year she came to the throne, but also because Charles is trying far too hard to signal his woke credentials. It is opening a can of worms to delve into the crown's links to slavery. After all, where does it end? Those of us who did not benefit from the Norman conquest have every right to feel aggrieved. Anglo-Saxon England was far more egalitarian. Our land was stolen. So, well, when will the king hand back Cornwall and Lancaster? Dangerous times. And this is from Jason. I've always had a bit of a soft spot for Charles, largely due to the pasting he took around the time of Diana. And I always hugely respected our late queen. However, Charles III seems to be thinking that people who are monarchists are all so woke. God knows how he came to that conclusion. Put that together with the antics of ginge and whinge. And I'm very quickly becoming a Republican. Oh, dear, Jason. I think that's
0: speaking for all of us there chinge and whinge and on that (laughs) bombshell that's it from Planet Normal for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason our flying refuge of reason views email of the week it's my turn I think it's Vince has to be Vince Vince send us your postal address in an email with mug winner in the subject heading and a rare as rocking horse poo Planet Normal mug will wing its way to you
2: if you enjoy Planet Normal, please do leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. There's some absolutely lovely reviews there, not all of them written by the Halligan diaspora, and even from some younger people who are listening to us.
0: And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal and the madness of planet Earth, comes back into view, thanks as ever, to our producers Isabel Bujard, Elliot Lampett and Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And
2: it's goodbye from him.